I'm going to be reading Matthew 22, 37, and 38. Matthew 22, 37, and 38. He said to him, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. Well, good morning. We're glad that you're here this morning at Savannah. Glad that you're here to worship God today. If you're visiting here, you are an honored guest, and I hope you will stick around and get to know this great church family. Lots of good things going on here at Savannah. Summertime's going to be very busy, uh, but a busy church is, is, is most of the time a happy church, and so I'm excited about everything that lies ahead for, you, for this church this summer. Isn't it wonderful to be loved by such an amazing God. To be in a relationship uh, with a God who cares so much about us. A God who He cares enough, He loves enough, He loves you and He loves me. He loves us so much that He wants us to be in heaven with Him one day. And not only does He want that, he, He's put everything in place to make that possible. It's almost overwhelming when you step back and think about the way that God loves us. And, and so when you start thinking about that, one of the natural responses is, okay, if God loves me that way, then, then how should I respond to that? We've been singing about love this morning, and I appreciate what Ben's done, the fine way that he's directing us, and, and the songs about our love for God and the way we're to love. But, you know, one of the questions that, that we've got to ask is, okay, when I go to the mirror, do I truly love God? Legitimate question. One preacher friend of mine in the church where he preaches, he posed the question this way. He said, do we, do we truly love God? Are we in love with God? Or are we really just in love with all the stuff and all the things that He's done for us? And see, and in my mind, it raises some additional questions. If I truly am loving God, if I'm in love with God, how can I know? What is the kind of love that God wants for me? What does that look like? Is it a feeling? Is it an emotion? Is it more than just a feeling? Is it, it, how does loving God, how does that manifest itself in my life? Well, as I was thinking about this and when I was preparing this lesson, an email arrived and it was an email to a link for a blog and Jack Wilkie at Focus Press, he'd written an article, that the, the name of the article, the title, it grabbed my attention. The title of the article was, You Don't Really Love God. And he put the emphasis on the word really. And so I had to read that. And it's a challenging article. He, he begins by talking about how when we become very familiar with something, the more familiar with it we are, it can lose its ability to impact us the way that maybe it ought to. Uh, one way to think about it is, is this way. The ocean is pretty amazing. It's powerful. And I've never lived right on the ocean, but I suspect that if I lived on the ocean, after a while, I might start taking the ocean for granted just a little bit. And I wonder sometimes if maybe that happens with God and His love and His blessings, the Word of God, everything that He's provided for us. And so God loves me, 
but do I truly love God? Now Jesus, He rolls through in Scripture, John chapter 14, if you want to go there. He comes through in Scripture and, and He provides a, a definition, a way to know. He says, if you're going to love God, this, this is what it looks like, this is how you can know. And He didn't define it by a, a special feeling. He didn't define it by a flood of emotion. But rather than His simple, concise definition, rather than it bringing us peace and surety and confidence, sometimes I'm afraid that His simple definition of what it means to love God, I wonder sometimes if it doesn't just stir up a tension within us because of our own shortcomings and our own insecurities and our own failures. Jesus is near the cross in John 14. He's with 11 of the 12. Judas has already left the room to make final preparations for the betrayal. And so as he's speaking to the inner circle there in John chapter 14, verse 15, Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And then just to uh, reinforce that and then to make sure that uh, it's not just something that's defined or confined to the inner circle, when you drop down to verse 23, he comes back again and says, If anyone loves me, he'll keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we'll make our abode with him. Now, is it simple and straightforward? I would say yes, it is. Is it easy to understand what Jesus has just said? Absolutely. It's not complicated. Everything's great until we start trying to live that out. And it's not because of Him. It's because of my failures and my shortcomings and and my inabilities to live this out to the degree that I'd like to. Am I the only one in the room who from time to time gets very frustrated by my own disobedience. In other words, I know what Jesus has said, and I actually know what the right thing to do is, but I get frustrated because I go and do what God said I shouldn't do. He's told me how to live, but I'm not living that way. I'm just going to go ahead and make a leap and an assumption as we study this morning. I'm going to proceed with the assumption that all of us in the room that are old enough to understand this, all of us have disobeyed God at least one time. And if we're there, then we're all in the same boat in one sense. And here's why the statement from Jesus, this is why it causes attention. This is why it's frustrating for us. In my moment of disobedience, did that cause me to question whether or not I loved God? Whether or not I'd ever loved Him in the first place. And obviously, because Jesus said, if a person loves me, He'll do what I say. And then I've gone out and I didn't do what He said. So did that mean that I didn't love Him? Well, obviously, I've never felt that way. And you probably haven't either. I dare say that all of us, when we were at some point when we were young, when we were growing up, at some point all of us probably disobeyed our parents at least one time, but in our moment of disobedience with our parents, we didn't question whether or not we loved mom and dad. And for those of us who've been blessed to have children, we've probably seen our children disobey us at some time. My children have disobeyed, they've, but I've never once questioned whether or not they loved me. So what does this mean? Does, you know, was Jesus somehow off base in what He said? Was He having a bad moment of teaching there in the final hours? Or could there possibly be more? 
consider. A couple more questions that I think are worthy of our attention as we set this discussion up. What does love really mean anyway? In other words, what does the obedient love that, that Jesus talks about look like? I mean, let's face it, we, love is a confusing term. It's a frustrating term. It's a horrible term in the English language because instead of defining it and using one word to talk about one thing, we use that word to talk about everything. Now, I love my new tie. And I love my Starbucks coffee. And I love my home. And I love my wife. And I love my iPad. And I love my children. And I love my UK basketball. And I love my church family. And my temporary church family. And I love my parents. And I love Orange Beach. And I love the Bible. And I love P.F. Chang's. And I love Ellie. She's my daughter's little Maltese. And I love God. You see the problem? Now, obviously, we're, we're talking about love that's based in the mind, not simply based in the emotion. We're talking about agape. We're talking about that highest form of love. More than a feeling, even though feelings are a part of it. Love that's not swayed negatively by emotion, even though there should be appropriate emotion involved with it. Obviously, we're talking about love that's way more than simply a feeling. Second question that we sometimes wrestle with Am I doomed to failure because I sometimes struggle in my love for and my obedience to God? And obviously the answer is no. If you and I could go to John chapter 14 and verse 15, and if we could read that, and if we could look at that, and if we could live that out to perfection, Jesus in the cross becomes unnecessary. We don't need that anymore. And so we understand we need His grace and we need His patience and we need His mercy because we know He said that, but we know it's hard and we know it's difficult and we know we're going to stumble from time to time. It's like Ben said, we all come in here with issues. We all come in here with some pain. But just because we're imperfect... That doesn't mean that it's not valuable to poke around at our faith and our commitment and do some self-examination, the self-examination that Scripture calls us to time and time again. Because God does place a priority on our obedience. He does want us to do what He's asked us to do. And that has a lot of implications. That means that doctrine is important. And in some circles, doctrines become a bit of a dirty word today, but, but it's important because it is what God has said that He wants. Perhaps the other passage, the one that was just read, the, the, the one out of Matthew chapter 22, perhaps that helps us better understand the command from Jesus. And it also may help us pinpoint our growth opportunities. And see, one of the challenges to preaching, when you think about a room full of people, we've got young folks maybe who need to be thinking about being Christians, and we've got young Christians, and then you've got everything in between all the way over to the other side where we've got people who've been Christians longer than I've been alive. And so how do we find something in the Bible that everyone can latch on to and that everybody can find traction in? And see, I think Matthew 22 is that place. Because this Pharisee lawyer, he's, he's shown up and he's testing Jesus and he's asking about which commandment is the greatest. And so Jesus comes back and says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. Back to that article that 
Jack Wilkie wrote, that place that we started, the You Really Don't Love God article. See, this is the passage of Scripture that his article was focused on. And so then after acknowledging that the verse is teaching that every fiber of my being should be consumed with God, Wilkie says, I'm not anywhere close to keeping this commandment. And when I think about my life, neither am I. And maybe from time to time you find yourself in that same boat too. And see, sometimes there's just something valuable about having the courage to say it out loud. God has said this, and I'm not there yet. I'm still working on that. I'm still a work in process, progress. Because sometimes in an honest moment, instead of all my heart and all my soul and all my mind, sometimes I'm probably way too okay with some. Or maybe even most. But see, some fall short of all. And most fall short of all. Which is the standard that God has set up. C.S. Lewis said every Christian would agree that a man's spiritual health is exactly proportional to his love for God. And so in these few minutes, as we poke around and we examine our love for and our obedience to God, the question becomes, how spiritually healthy are we? Really? See, I would submit to you that, that, that for all of us, and this is where it, it applies to everybody, I would submit to you that becoming better at living out all is where all of us can find some opportunity for being better in our spiritual walk. In other words, all of us should be in the relentless pursuit of all. The better we become at living out all, the more spiritually healthy we become. Think about the most godly person you know. Maybe a parent. Maybe some other family member. Maybe somebody who's been a mentor to you. Uh, maybe a, a shepherd in the Lord's church. Perhaps a preacher. Whoever it might be. Whoever you're thinking about. This is what I can tell you about that person. See, the relentless pursuit of all is the reason that the most spiritual person you know is still a lifelong student of God's Word. After all, I cannot obey what I do not know. The second thing I can tell you, the relentless pursuit of all is the reason the most spiritual person you know is not self-satisfied, not feeling like he or she has arrived, but always trying to elevate their, their relationship with God. And third, the relentless pursuit of all, that's the reason that the most spiritual person you know is still humble and, and, and with this understanding that they haven't arrived yet. So in the few minutes we have left, I want us to think in terms of how can we be more successful in pursuing all. And I'm going to give you one takeaway statement, one idea to walk out of here with today, one practical thing that I hope will somehow bless you in your walk with God. And so I want to think about the relationship between minimum standards and loving God, or the relationship between minimum standards and spiritual health, because sometimes we do life in a, in a minimum standard sort of way, and what I'd submit to you is that's not what God's looking for from us. Here's what I want you to walk out of here with today. When all is my goal, and it should be according to Matthew 22, so when all is my goal, minimum standards will not help me grow. 
But all is my goal, minimum standards, they are not useful in helping me move toward all. See, in an honest moment, what motivates me to love God and to actively attempt to be close to Him and, and, and obey Him? Is my goal to be as close to Him as possible? I mentioned our little white Maltese Ellie, my, my daughter's dog. Well, every now and then if she's gone, we cheat and we, we will allow the dog to sleep up on our bed. And she doesn't like that. She wants it to stay in the crate at night and not get into that habit. But we'll let it up on the bed with us. And it's a big king-sized bed. And we're not huge people. But that dog, instead of finding her own spot on the bed, she will get just as close to one of us as she possibly can. And you won't sleep good because you're afraid you're going to turn over and squash her. She wants to be close. Is that how my relationship with God is? Wanting to be just as close to Him as I can possibly be? Or am I attempting to be just close enough to God to feel good maybe about myself? Or to somehow be close enough to feel like, well, I'm, I'm hopefully still under the umbrella of His blessing. I don't want to get under the umbrella. I still want Him to bless my life. But So as long as I'm covered, that's good enough with me. Or I'm going to try to stay close enough to God. I don't want to make Him mad, so I do want to stay somewhat close. Don't want Him irritated with me. Hope that I'm trying hard enough that His grace will cover me. And obviously, that's not the way to think. Hopefully. But we understand how minimum standards work. If you remember back to being in school and your teacher assigns a 6-10 to page paper, you're not worried about 10, are you? I'm not worried about 10. I'm worried about going to the library and getting the material together and adequately covering my topic in six pages. I don't care about 10 because six is the minimum. When we hire someone to prepare our taxes, we want two things. We want accuracy. We don't want to be audited. And if we are, we want to be prepared for that. So we want accuracy. But then the other thing we want when we hire somebody to take care of our taxes is I want to pay what I owe, but I don't want to pay more than I owe because they don't know how to take care of what they got. And so we understand how minimum standards work. Are we sometimes guilty of doing love and obedience to our God out of a sense of obligation. Maybe you at some point have had somebody do something nice for you, but in them doing something nice, and you weren't trying to pass judgment on them or anything like that, but, but for whatever reason, you just you perceived in your mind that they really were doing that because they felt like they had to. How did that make you feel in that moment? Because we serve a God who wants us to love Him and wants us to be close to Him out of a sense of gratitude, not out of a sense of obligation. Paul warned about giving back to God out of that sense of obligation in 2 Corinthians 9. And he says, you know, if you're giving back to God, let it be, let it be cheerful. Not under compulsion, because God loves a cheerful giver. And so my thought process on life and on serving God should be this idea of cheerful obedience... Or maybe my engagement 
God is out of a sense of obligation. You know, I don't want to feel guilty, and so I want to do it so that I don't have to feel guilty about my, my engagement and my, my, my motivation, my, my service to God. Here's my question. Because when we start thinking about minimum standards, this may be the show-stopping question for this lesson. What if Matthew chapter 22, verses 37 and 38, what if that is the minimum standard? Here's why minimum standards don't work, and we've got to fly through these. One of the reasons that minimum standards do not work is because in a covenant relationship with God, I can't earn anything from God that I'd actually want. I can earn a lot of bad things because I fall short. I can earn things that I don't want, but in a covenant relationship with God, there's no way I can go out and earn something from Him that I'd actually want. Because the Bible says in Matthew 6 verse 23, "...for the wages of sin is death." My shortcomings would earn me things that I do not want. He solved my legal problem. He stepped in and allowed a son to be lifted up so that, so that there would be a way out. I owe it all to Him, not to anything that I've done. I believe that helps explain what Jesus was teaching in Luke 17 when he, he, His disciples are asking Him to increase their faith. And so He talks to them. He shares this illustration about servants and masters. And, and He concludes this way in verse 10. He says, So you too, when you do all the things you're commanded, you say we're unworthy slaves. We've done only what we should have done. Jesus wants us to be second mile people. He talked about that in the Sermon on the Mount. So... Some telltale signs. How can I know? Are there some warning signs that might indicate that I've gotten caught up in a minimum standard approach to my service? First, when I purposefully and regularly limit the amount of time that, that I choose to spend with my church family. In other words, uh, my shepherds, they've designated times that they say it would be good for us as family to be together. But, but I'm choosing to, to not be with my church family. And it might manifest itself in statements like, well, isn't going to church once a week enough? Or, or where does the Bible say that I have to be there more than one time? Or Bible classes, those sound like great ideas for children, but, but, but I'm not really sure that, that there's an adult benefit there. Because the uncomfortable question is... When I choose to limit my participation, does that really sound like love and obedience that could be described as the relentless pursuit of all? Or it may manifest itself in making time for everything that interests me, but then struggling to allocate time to things that will help me grow spiritually. We talked a long time ago about how great we are at overcommitting our lives and not having enough time. Do I have trouble allocating time to spiritual growth opportunities? Or maybe my problem is I, I'm comparing my good deeds to those of somebody else. And so I, I look at Ben and I look at what the good things that Ben are doing, but then I say, well, maybe I'm doing a little more than he is, and I do that to make me feel good about me. Or maybe I just want to compare my good deeds to my own sin. I want to, I want to get a scale out and I want to pile my sin over here on one side, and then I want to try to pile my good deeds over here, and I hope that my good deeds will somehow carry more weight than my sin did.
See, there are a lot of ways we can think about minimum standards. And I'm convinced in reading Scripture that that's not the way God has called us to live for Him. God loves us. And we need to be overwhelmed by His love and cheerfully doing everything we can to be as close to Him as we can is where we ought to be. And so as we finish, I would ask you to think about where are your best opportunities? Where are my best opportunities? If I look at my life, how can I be closer to Him? How can I demonstrate my love for Him more completely? How can I get away from minimum standards and and move toward pursuing all? Maybe it's my time. Maybe it's my money. Maybe it's my ambitions, my habits. There, there are all these things. Maybe it's one area for you and a different area for me. Not too long ago, a lady very close to us passed away, Miss Bobby Martin. And she's not blood family, but their family's like blood family to us. And at her memorial service, Charles Curtis was preaching her funeral. And one of the things he said really stuck with me that day, because he'd known her far longer than I ever had. And he said, Miss Bobby, she loved the right things. Could that be said about you? Could that be said about me? Are we in the relentless pursuit of all? Or are we too often guilty of being okay with some or maybe even most? Let me challenge you to remember our statement, when all is my goal, minimum standards will not help me grow. Today, as we get ready to sing, break my heart. Maybe your heart needs to be broken. Maybe it is broken. Maybe you need your church family to be praying for you today. We serve the God who allows us to start over anytime we need to. And maybe that's your need. Maybe you're here today and you're ready to start your walk with Him. Begin your walk with Him. If you have a need, let that be known while we stand, while Ben leads us.